We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. Hey everybody, it's October 31st, 2009, and welcome to a very spooky... Alright, I'm not doing that. There's nothing special or spooky. This is not a Halloween edition of the podcast. And in fact, I'm probably going to be recording this in multiple chunks uh, because, uh, uh, because of what happened last night. So the only reason I'm doing this now, and in fact, I don't even have a topic right at this moment, uh, but I, I had to get this down mostly just for myself, so I could remember everything that happens. And writing just takes so long, and I do a podcast anyway, so let's just do it there. Um, but last night, I went to the Kevin Smith Q&A, and it was at the Warfield. We were up in the balcony, great seats. Uh, but really, the reason I went is I am a huge... I, I don't even really care for his movies all that much, but I love the hell out of his uh, podcast, which he calls the Smodcast, because it's... Uh, Smith and Mosier. Mosier is his producer who's been the producer on almost all of his films. I love the hell out of that. And so I was just like, I gotta go. Plus, you know, the, the death of John Hughes. I was like, damn it, man. I'm never gonna meet John Hughes. I at least want to get a chance to say something to Kevin Smith in my lifetime because I just, I just love the hell out of that podcast. So I said, all right, let's go. So for those of you, who may not know, I am a total celebrity nerd. Like, I see a celebrity, and the first thing that gets into my head is, I should say something. And that's, you know, I, I, went, I once followed Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, but at that time, this was the 90s, he, there was no S-B-S-P Yet, I mean, Tom Kenny was just this stand-up comedian who I thought was really funny. I followed him into the bathroom at the Paradise Lounge just so I could ask him something. And actually, you know, he was, what I had to ask actually wasn't that bad, and his answer was actually really good. So I feel okay about that, even though it was super, super creepy, the fact that I did it. Uh, but, I, but anyway, that's the way I am. So as soon as I buy these tickets to go see Kevin Smith do the Q&A, I'm like, I gotta ask something. I gotta, what am I gonna ask? I gotta ask something. So, fortunately, I, I felt I had a pretty good question going into this. By the way, just fast forward to the end. This experience turned out great. So, this is not gonna be like, Kevin Smith's a dick and he, he looked at me and called me stupid and then jerked off on my face. No, that did not happen. So, rest your mind at ease, true believers. We were gonna be okay. So, uh, so of course, I had a minor freak out like two days ago because I have been rehearsing my question because uh, I wanted to pack in as much as I could because, well, you'll hear the question later, but I wanted to get in as much as I could. So I really wanted it to be well thought out and, and sharp and, and clean and all that. Um, so like two nights ago, I forgot the question and I was, I think I was in bed and I was just like, Oh my God, what's my question? What's my question? And then I had like a couple of backup questions. Like if I had time, I would ask. And I was like, no, that's not it. No, no, that's not it. Oh my God, what's my question? And then like five minutes later, I remembered the question. So it was fine. We get there and Kevin Smith comes out. Kevin Smith, by the way, 
with these Q&As, he's really got a good strategy, right? Like in terms of entertainment value. And it's kind of the same thing that I'm doing with this podcast because he sells it as a night with Kevin Smith. Okay, I mean, that could be Kevin taking a shit for what he claims to be no less than an hour when he does it. Okay, well, that's a a big chunk of the evening right there. Watching Kevin Smith shit. Awesome. While he reads a magazine. I mean, it's so vague. There's no promise of laughs. There's no real promise of entertainment. And that's sort of the way this podcast is. This podcast is like, I will tell you things and... Maybe uh, somewhere by luck along the way, you might find something amusing and laugh. Uh, you know, the, the guy who really screwed himself is uh, Jimmy Pardo, who has the podcast Never Not Funny. I'll be honest with you, that, that, that podcast is frequently not funny. It's interesting, but it, it's not funny all the time. Now, mind you, from a marketing standpoint, it's good because you're like, well, never not funny. I, I enjoy laughing. I enjoy things that are funny. I'll download that right now. It's better than, you know, The Sound of Young America, which is a terrible, but, but it's actually a way better podcast than uh, Never Not Funny. But I honestly didn't download The Sound of Young America for the longest time because I thought it was a kid show and I didn't want that. So, uh, and then it, it wasn't until like the third time I heard the promo for it where I was like, oh, they actually just talked to really good guests. Oh, that's actually the podcast I wish I was doing. Is that what he's, oh, okay, I'll download it now. So I don't know. I mean, who's the bigger idiot, right? The guy who oversells the podcast and under delivers or, or the guy who has a name that bites balls and uh, takes you forever to download. But once you download it, it's way better. I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, I, me and Kevin Smith, we're going into this thing where we're not promising too much, which I think is best for me. Anyway, so I get there and Kevin gets on stage and he does his little uh, rap about uh, being in San Francisco and the last time he was in San Francisco. And it's it's all very – it's it's actually really funny. And he tells a story about a guy peeing on the street and, and the, the punchline is, welcome to San Francisco. And actually that's funny because uh, Miriam and uh, our friend Leanne and I had a similar experience. Um, it was her – I think it was like her first or second night after moving from Seattle. And we took her to the Edinburgh pub in uh, Edinburgh Castle in uh, the Tenderloin. And we're leaving actually on our way home from the Edinburgh Castle. And uh, there's a dude peeing on um, a mailbox. And he just looks at us and he goes, please forgive me. And I go, well, enjoying some of the local color. Here you go. Awesome. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a, seems like a running, uh, my first time, or not my first time, but uh, welcome to San Francisco theme. People being in the streets. I'm sure that's uh, too big for a bumper sticker or a, or a state or you know, a city slogan. Welcome to San Francisco. People being in the streets since, you know, 1895. So anyway, Kevin Smith gets up. He tells his little story about welcome to San Francisco. And then he says, okay, well, we got some microphones up here and we got one in the balcony. And, you know, and so immediately, boom, I'm out of my seat. I'm practically knocking. Thank God I was on kind of the edge. There were only two people between me and the aisle because if I had been dead center, oh, there would have been trouble. I would have been you know, climbing over people. And thank God I did, man. Um, or thank God I was near the edge because I just popped right out. Those two dudes were right on it. They stood right up. They didn't do that stupid passive aggressive. I'm just going to turn to the side and you can, you know, climb. Climb over me. Uh-uh. They were up. I was out. 
down at the microphone in, I don't know, 15 seconds. It was great. And so I'm standing there and uh, there's two on the floor and there's one up in the balcony. So the two people on the floor go first. I would say, no joke, to answer the first two questions, probably about 25 minutes. So I'm standing up there for a half an hour, and then there's a line forming behind me of everybody who wants to ask questions. And the the bummer thing about the balcony is that um, for the people who are on the floor, it actually works out really well, because if they were far back, the microphones are right at the stage. So if you had a, a seat way in the back and you wanted to ask a question, you just step right up to the front of the stage. It's like being at a, you know, a show. It's like being at a rock show and you've got, you know, standing right at the front of the stage. But good news, nobody's pressing you from behind. Bad news is, is if you're in the balcony, um, they have a stairwell. It, it, the microphone's right at the top of the stairwell. And so I was lucky because I was number one. So I was right at the top of the stairwell and I had a great view, you know, right down the center. Whereas everybody behind me is now down in a pit. And I don't know if they could see anything. And if the first two questions are taking almost a half an hour, they're missing most of the show being in the pit. Another reason why I wanted to talk about this moment, and, and I'm a little annoyed at myself that I didn't bring, um, or I didn't like, you know, cell phone, you know, call on my cell phone and just leave an answering machine message of me asking the question. Like I thought the question would be like, Hey, here's my question. Oh, okay. Well, here's your answer. And I figured, well, if it's a real straightforward answer, I could just remember it. You know, how easy is that? Just put it in your head. And it's like, cause my, cause, okay. So here's, here's the question, right? So I get up there and I say, Hey, my name, in my head, this is the way I had memorized the question. I said, Hey, my name is Alan. Um, I'm working on stations of the Gretzky on the Viewaskew website or on the, see, now I'm screwing it up already. <laughs> my name is Alan. I'm working on stations of the Gretzky on the smart art thread on the stations. Or, oh, shit. I, I had this, it was, it was funny. Like I had it memorized and I, I was doing it so well over and over again. And now that I've actually said it, I screwed up. Stations of the Gretzky on the Smod Art thread on the View Askew website. And my question is, I was listening to the Kevin Pollack chat show, and you mentioned that you took clerks to the IFFM. You got uh, Bob Hawk to see it. He sent out the word. Uh, you got a nice article in the Village Voice. What happens in the timeline between the Village Voice and actually selling clerks? Right. Like there's a gap in that. And then that's where the question ends. But what I mean is, is that there's a gap in that timeline that, you know, it's just like, oh, we did. You know, it's like most Hollywood stories. They like to go da 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 da. And I did this and this. And then I was famous. And then you're like, well, what, hey, wait a minute. What? I, there's some pieces missing here. Like, how did you get an agent? And how did you get this into the right hands? And all this stuff. You know, it's like Lonely Island Boys. We did some stuff on the Internet and then we were on Saturday Night Live. Huh? No, there's some missing pieces. So I really wanted to lock down that timeline because to me, Kevin Smith is, I would say the, I think I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It's the, he's the only dude who has managed to come out of the gate with one of these multi-million dollar independent productions and kept the ball going. 
right? Like, you know, Blair Witch Project, huge out of the gate. What have they done since? They had a TV show on. I think it ran like eight episodes. Never heard from again. Uh, My Big Fat Greek Greek Wedding, Nia Verdarlos. All right, I understand she had some personal tragedy in her life and maybe she took some time off. But really? I mean, she did this. She acted in this one other thing. But really? I mean, that's kind of it. You know, she was kind of done. And maybe the fact is that the people, these people made an enormous amount of money. Like the Blair Witch Project people, I mean, their movie made like $100 million. Kevin Smith's Clerks made $6 million. And I don't know what kind of back-end Clerks got. I know Blair Witch Project, I think those dudes got a lot of back-end and screwed the, ooh, screwed the actors, woo. And I feel bad for those actors because they couldn't parlay it into diddle squat. I mean, the girl who was in it, I saw her in one other thing. And by the way, super bitter that she got screwed. And I guess I would be too. Uh, You know, I mean, there's only so much you can accredit to the producers and their concept because they didn't write anything. All the actors wrote what they did. It was all improv. I mean, yeah, the producers had the concept. They came out of the woods at night. They shook the trees. They, you know, they tried to be scary. That's fine. But they, there's a lot they didn't do that they really should have thrown a bone to the actors for. But they didn't. So, oh, well, you know, you made a bad deal. Suck it. Deal's a deal. But Kevin only made $6 million. So maybe that was part of the reason why he kept on going. But I don't really think so. I, I think that guy is a writer and an entertainer. And if you see these Q&As, he loves to entertain and he loves to tell stories. In that same episode of the Kevin Pollack chat show, when um, Kevin Pollack asked him if he would do the chat show, uh, Kevin Smith said, well, I do like to talk. So he did it. Uh, and boy, damn, does he, man. He will take any question. And he does kind of have some pre-prepared stuff that, you know, people have asked similar questions and he's managed to workshop it a little bit and get, you know, the laughs in there. Uh, and he does kind of lean those stories towards um, that you know, the, the he tends to take those questions, no matter what questions are being asked, and sort of point them in that direction of, well, I know he asked about, um, you know, my dog Mulder, but I got a really funny story about my dog Shecky. So I'm going to transition the Mulder into the Shecky and then tell you how uh, Shecky got her vagina tore up by the other dog or whatever, you know. Um, but... So he does do a, a, a little bit of that. But getting back to uh, Kevin Smith, he's really the only one who has managed to keep going. I mean, he's done like six or seven movies, written, directed. He's even got, you know, semi-starring roles in as Silent Bob. I mean, it, it, you cannot deny his talents as a fluke. I mean, you may not like him, but you can't deny that there is certainly an audience for them. And then there's an audience for people who like what he does. Uh, and I haven't yet to see anybody else even come close to that. I mean, maybe, maybe Judd Apatow, but Judd Apatow came up with freaks and geeks and, and all of this stuff. And he gets big, big budgets to do what he wants to do. And Kevin Smith is doing what he's doing with, you know, he did, uh, uh, chasing Amy for $250,000. Mind you, he had Ben Affleck, who agreed to work for almost nothing, but uh, it was still a super, super low budget. But anyway, getting back to uh, my question. So I get up there, 
and I say, hey, I say, hey, my name is Alan. Uh, I'm working on the station. So the Gretzky and this part, this is the part that I will always remember. And, and uh, no matter what gets obscured in the future, I'm always going to hang on to this. And I say, hey, I'm working on the stations of the Gretzky. For those of you who don't know, um, in one of the podcasts, Kevin Smith uh, was equating uh, the virtues that Wayne Gretzky um, extols and embodies as really good virtues. And they are. They're absolutely phenomenal virtues uh, that you rarely see in a sports icon and he said, well, look, you know, these virtues are no more ridiculous and no more less valuable than what you would get in a religion. You know, religion says, be nice to people. Wayne Gretzky says, be nice to people. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a one for one. The virtues that Wayne Gretzky embodies, let's make that a religion. I mean, we've got the Stations of the Cross in Catholicism. Why don't we have the Stations of the Gretzky for our own Gretzky religion? I mean, it wasn't quite like that, but you know, you get the idea. And so um, I was listening to the the, the Smodcast and I was like, yeah, with Stations of the Gretzky. And then he started working a little bit and he started talking about what the some of the early stations would be. And I'm like, yeah, I could totally do that. And they have this whole art thread, you know, art art inspired from um, Smodcasts. And so I started putting up pictures of what I would think, you know, the various stations would look like. And so anyway, so I get up there and I say, hey, my name is Alan and I'm working on the stations of the Gretzky on the Smod Art thread. And he goes, you're that guy? And I go, yep, I'm that guy. And he goes, oh man, I love that stuff. It makes me laugh. And I was like, yeah, that was awesome. I mean, that was... You know, I was, when I had been rehearsing my question, a lot of the times I had also been sort of planning for what could have come next. And a lot of times it was, you're awesome, man. I want to give you a job, you know, way over the, the, the other crazy side. But then every once in a while, there's the, hey, man, you're an asshole. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be over the stations of the Gretzky. It would be a little farther along because I had said something stupid or, you know, and he, and then, you know, for some reason, Kevin turns into a dick because I've had that happen, you know, where I get up and I ask a question about somebody or something and I say it wrong. Oh, that guy. Oh, and that's, um, uh, the guy who wrote, uh, High Fidelity, Hornby, Nick Hornby. I don't know if I've told this story before, but I'll tell you anyway. So Nick Hornby was at a book signing for About a Boy, I believe. And I went and I, I had read High Fidelity and I was kind of disappointed by it. Uh, I thought the movie was way better. And the, the thing about the book that I, I thought was neat was it was, you know, it was a dude who was obsessed with lists and I'm obsessed with lists. So I thought, oh, this is a perfect match. This would be great. So I read it and I was like, oh, okay. But you know, his character um, has a lot of lists about, um, you know, the greatest this, the you know, the greatest rock and roll band. Uh, and then he, he has his own personal lists like the person, you know, in my top 10 worst uh, girlfriend breakups of all time. And so he's obsessed with these lists. And, and I always got the feeling that they were the characters lists and not really Nick's lists. And so... I really wanted to know, like, well, what was his top five bands of all time or top five albums? I can't remember what I was asking. I get up at the book signing and I say, I, I really wanted to make it clear 
I was looking for his lists, not a character in the book, because I could easily see him saying, well, you know, so-and-so thinks blah 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 And I'm like, no, I don't want to know so-and-so. I want to know you. So I got up and I said, what is Nick Hornsby's uh, top, you know, 10 bands of all time? And I kind of, as soon as I said it, I kind of heard somebody, like two or three people in the crowd go, uh. And he, he lost his shit, right? Like, this is exactly, I don't know, man. Like, I get it a little bit. Like, if my name is Hornby and everybody calls me Hornsby, like Nick Hornsby or, or um, Bruce Hornsby in the range. And he just launched into me and it was like, what's the matter? What is it? Uh, Bruce Hornsby. Is that why everybody keeps doing it? And then he was just like, you know, he kind of like made it all about that. Never did answer my damn question, that jerk. But, oh, but I felt totally vindicated because um, when About a Boy came out in movie, uh, Hugh Grant was on David Letterman and I was watching and uh, and David Letterman is talking to Hugh Grant and he says, uh, so this, can I have sex with you? No. <laughs> he said, um, you, you know, we should have seen the signs then that Dave, not only, uh, he was just a horny, horny man and he just wanted to have sex with everybody. You know, we should have seen the signs, but uh, who knew? We thought he would only like to have sex with celebrities and wasn't so into the interns. But hey, just like uh, World War II, we should have seen the signs. Live and learn. We have to remember our past or we're destined to repeat it. Uh, so, so David Letterman's got Hugh Grant there and he says, uh, eh, so you're in this movie about a boy based on the uh, Nick Hornsby book and you can see Hugh Grant kind of like do a thing in his head like, should I correct him? No, he's the host. I don't want to be a dick like some people who feel the need to correct all the time. Uh, I'm just going to let it go. And of course, me, I'm on my couch, like doing fist pumps in the air and like, yeah, somebody else made that same mistake. I'm not the only one. Yay, me. And yay, David Letterman for being that guy, because I think you're awesome. I want to have sex with you, David Letterman. (laughs) Why couldn't have been me? So I had all these scenarios about how this question was going to play out. Now, you know, uh, I see how this is going. can see how Kevin Smith gets in this troubling territory because I've been doing 25 minutes. I'm not even halfway through the question and not even close to one-tenth of the way through this night yet. Uh, I, th- uh, this whole podcast may just be this one night. So he says, I like those. They make me laugh. And I said, oh, thank you. And then I added something that I hadn't, I hadn't thought about. And I said, um, well, you know, we do a lot of great stuff. And if anybody here hasn't uh, been to the Smart Art th- Thread yet on the View Askew website, please come and check it out. Uh, they've got new stuff coming and even some new stuff posted just today. And I thought about adding some other stuff, but I like cut myself short because I was like, no, 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 no. That was perfect. You really got it all out in one breath. Let's not... Let's not get crazy. And um, Kevin Smith said, uh, hey, you're better at pimping my shit than I am about pimping my shit. This is this is part of the problem where like when it's stuff like this and it goes bing, 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 it's real easy to remember the timeline and how it plays out. But there's this one piece. Now, mind you, here's the other thing is, is I made a very conscious effort yesterday. I was not going to have any alcohol, not a bit, because I wanted to remember this night 
perfectly. I wanted to remember everything about it, any advice he gives, anything. I want to remember it all. And still I couldn't do it. And I'm still, I'm pissed at myself that I couldn't, I can't get it together a hundred percent. And I mean, of course, you know, what am I, I don't have a photographic memory and I were an audiographic memory or whatever. But so he, he had done a, a costume change as it were. Um, he doesn't wear the big black overcoat on stage anymore. The, the silent Bob overcoat. He, he came out initially, um, with, a uh, sort of like a, a baseball type jacket, but like real long, like almost mid thigh jacket. Cause he's a heavy guy and he doesn't, he wants to be as amorphous as possible. So he wears just long baggy clothing, hence the trench coat for so many years. And uh, <laughs> there was a guy that the guy who asked the second question, he said, uh, he said, the guy who asked the second question said, Hey, I got a, I got a long question and a short question. And he's like, well, man, give me the long question first. And the, and he's like, okay. And then Kevin Smith just walks off stage. And the guy, the guy says, um, hey, do you know when the uh, Clerks 2 in action, action figures are coming out? And then there's this really long pause and Kevin Smith is gone. And then like, you know, a couple of seconds later, he comes back and he's got the, this bathrobe on. You know, it's sort of light material, but it's it's a bathrobe, and it's clearly like I am putting up, you know, the the um, uh, Vaseline on the lens, a la Maddie Hayes in Moonlighting, which were there were a lot of Moonlighting references last night because he works with Bruce Willis. Um, and rather than you know, I can't Vaseline everybody's eyeballs in the audience, so I'm just going to wear this tarp, <laughs> and so you won't be able to see just how fat I am, which is so weird because it's like, really, dude. I mean, you've been this way for a hundred years. We know what you look like. Just stop it. And wearing a bathrobe on stage, you know, I don't know. It just seemed weird, but whatever. So Kevin Smith comes back out and he goes, I thought you were going to ask a long question. What's your question? And then the guy asks again and he goes, no, I don't know when they're coming out. (laughs) And I still wouldn't rate that as dicky of a move as Nick Hornsby. But, you know, I mean, Kevin did ask the guy, give me your long question first. I mean, it couldn't have been more straightforward. And what does the guy do? He gives him the short question. So anyway, so back to my question. He's in this bathrobe and I say, you know, hey, you know, everybody check out the VSQ website. And and he says, hey, you're better at pimping my shit. And then something and then like there's a beat that happens. And I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know if somebody said something from the audience or he just took it internally or what. And maybe this was the first time he was wearing this bathrobe, but it was a, it was like a gray bathrobe. I mean, it was a robe robe. I mean, it went almost down to his ankles, you know, big long sleeves, all this stuff. And I guess either someone in the audience or himself felt like I look like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And so, in the midst of my question, he takes the mic stand, he plants it on the stage, and he goes, You shall not pass! And I thought he was talking to me. Like, he was, like, this was some assertion against me. 
And I didn't realize at the time, I mean, later when I'm sitting in my seat going, what the, f- what happened? Um, he was really doing a comment on himself. And so I said back to him and, and not a bad retort, I guess. I was like, wait a minute. I went to a fanatical fan to a ball rog in like three seconds. Eh, not bad. Um, but of course, you know, it was, it was weird because he didn't know what the ball rog was. He knew the line from the movie, but he didn't know. And, 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 you know, that might have been what screwed him up because he was probably wearing this robe and the entire time he's thinking like, I should say something like Gandalf. I should say something. And he did it. And, uh, and so he was like, is that that thing in the movie? And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. And he goes, ha, that was a geek test. And I, what I wanted to say after, if he had given me like half a second, I would have said, please, I think everybody in this theater would have known that that was the Balrog. It's not like I'm the only one. But anyway, he didn't. He was like, okay, man, all right, so what dates are we talking about now? And so I said it again. And, and I said this probably about three times. Article in the Village Voice, uh, clerks gets signed, you know, gets bought. What, what happens in between? Now, the answer... Is very interesting, I think, um, because, you know, again, the Hollywood likes to make it sound like everybody's a star overnight. It's much more of a fun, romantic process. But actually, I really prefer the opposite. I like the, I did a bunch of stuff, and then I had to go back home. Because when you go from you know, I did a bunch of stuff, nothing happens, nothing happens, I'm a celebrity overnight, and then I take off, and I move, and then I never see my friends again, that's no much, that's, that's, that's okay, whatever, but when you do a bunch of stuff, and then you get some amount of fame, but then you have to go back home, that's the best, I love that, um, and so, you know, that's what happened to uh, the, I can't remember her name. She's the redhead on The Office. She was actually, she did like six episodes of The Office, but still didn't quit her day job because the uh, NBC hadn't picked it up yet. And so she was still waiting tables and being on TV all at the same time. And that's fantastic. I love that. So anyway, so what really happened in Kevin Smith's life was, uh, it's the IFFM is this independent film makers. I don't know what the other F stands for, uh, thing. And he showed his movie there. Nobody saw it except cast crew and this guy named Bob Hawk. Bob Hawk, who works in conjunction with like Sundance and like is a big mover shaker in the independent uh, arena. He started going around and telling everybody he could, Hey man, hey man. Uh, you gotta see this movie, Clerks. It's really great. And it's, you know, real gritty and independent and all this stuff. And then so he gets uh, this woman in the Village Voice to do an article about the IFFM and, you know, sort of Kevin and the movie Clerks as like sort of an example of what the IFFM does. So from there, it, it really helped, you know, get a lot of attention to the movie, but not really. So along the way, he gets, you know, because of all the attention, he gets a guy to help shop the movie. And he was shopping Clerks and this movie Go Fish, which is, I guess, a coming of age lesbian movie around the same time. I don't know. Anyway, so there, this guy is, is pushing these movies and he says they got 
everybody in the world to see it who they could get to see it. But the problem is, is that all the people they got to see it didn't have any sort of influence on these companies. I mean, they were all like, you know, interns and pay and script readers and all these folks who were like, yeah, your movie's great, but I can't buy it. I don't have any authority to buy it. What am I going to do? So their last ditch effort in, uh, what did he say? I think he said it went from October to February, February or March, uh, whenever Sundance is. So they took the movie to Sundance. You know, they sent, you know, they got, they got admitted to Sundance and they, they, they went off to Sundance and a guy who is in charge of acquisitions at Miramax saw Clerks. And apparently they had several screenings of Clerks at Sundance and every, every, uh, you know, subsequent screening got better and better and the audience loved it more and more and more people came and it was just like this snowballing effect because it's Park City, Utah in the winter time. Woo, winter time. And so the guy... Uh, who was in charge of acquisitions at Miramax, called up Harvey Weinstein and said, you got to come down and see this movie. uh, Harvey Weinstein had already left. This is how crazy this story gets. Like, Weinstein had already split because he had a bad run-in with some scriptwriter or something. And it was like, screw this noise, I'm out of here. And and the guy from acquisitions is like, you got to come back. That is crazy. Like, if it was me, I'd be like, I ain't coming back. And what's even crazier than that was that um, apparently Weinstein had already seen Clerks and didn't like it because he had just gotten off like a 14-hour plane flight, put the movie in, and Weinstein was an enormous smoker. And there's like, in the first like 20 minutes of Clerks, there's this huge diatribe about how you shouldn't smoke. And, you know, Weinstein's like, I hate this movie. It told me not to smoke. Yeah, give me another cigarette. You know, and and so... Just think about that, man. He had already been to Sundance. He had left. He had already seen Clerks and didn't like it. And then this dude from Acquisitions is like, no, no, no. You got to come back. Damn. That is crazy. So Weinstein gets on the thing, goes back, and 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 Kevin says, oh, and then he bought the movie. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> And I, of course, I didn't say this, but I'm in my head. I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean? And he bought the movie. I mean, that's like the Seinfeld episode where they go uh, yada yada. I mean, you're yada yadaing the best part. What do you mean? And he bought the movie. I mean, there's more in there. Come on. You spent 25 minutes on those dipshit questions of the people who came before me. I actually have a good question. Don't yada yada my answer. So I say, well, how does it? What do you mean he buys the movie? I mean, does he give you a card and say? Hey, when you go back to New Jersey, call me and we'll work out a deal. And this was kind of funny. This is, again, could have been a little, uh, could have been super dicky, but actually it turned out okay. Uh, Kevin says, well, it's not like I was dating Harvey. I mean, it's not like he says, hey, uh, you know, here's my card. Um, I just want to know when you, when you land in New Jersey that you got there okay. So, you know, if you could just call or something, because that's the way Harvey talks. Um now I can't get out of it. Uh, so he says, no, I mean, uh, we, we, the guy who was there uh, repping our movie, uh, he says, hey, look, Harvey, you know, you saw a gr- bunch of great reaction in there. If you're going to try and buy this at the, you know, at the show right now, you know, I hope you understand this is a big deal. And Harvey's like, all right, I'll give you 200000 for it. 
And the guy who was pushing the movie is like, well, you know, these, these guys put $27,000 into this movie already, you know? And Harvey says, you mean you want $227,000? And they're like, well, yeah, it'd be kind of funny, you know? And, and what's crazy that, than that is, so you may say to yourself, wow, $227,000. That's a lot of money, you know, to get for this movie. Well, not really, because they hadn't really paid any of the movie off yet. I mean, they had been making payments on their credit cards, but, you know, with the interest being so high, they, at this point, owed like $35,000 on this $27,000 loan, if you call it that. Um, And then they had to take $100,000 and take the print that they had and blow it up to... 35 millimeters and then from there i don't know if they had to pay to get multiple copies made or that's hundred thousand dollars is just the blow-up fee i think that's it i think that's that's how much a movie costs is a hundred thousand dollars for all the reels to make a 35 millimeter print of it and then uh i think they got some soundtrack work on that as well uh, but then at the end, all they really have is $100,000, which I don't know how they split it. I know Mosier's family put in some money. I know Kevin's family put in some money. I don't know how much, you know, each quote unquote family gets. But I guess if you're a guy who works at a quick stop, you know, for your whole life and you're not making very much money, I, I'm sure $100,000 seems like a whole bunch of money. But what Kevin also said was, and, and this is this is something that Adam Carolla has said a lot of too, which is this is your calling card, right? Like if you want to be in an industry, any industry, entertainment, whatever, you have to have something that says, look, I have I I I can show you, I can prove to you I can do this job. Here, look at this. I made clerks. Or uh, you know, I just got um uh, hired to do uh, flash promotions and banner ads and things for a healthcare company. I'd never done that before. I'd never gotten a work doing that. But now I can say not only, oh, yeah, I can do this and I did this for fun. No, these people paid me to do it and I delivered and all this good stuff. So even, you know, even though clerks didn't make that much money in the end, he had an entree, a foot in the door, as it were, uh, to, to continue in Hollywood and, and movie making. So he's talking about, you know, selling the movie at Sundance. And he looks at me after he's challenged, you know, after I answered the Balrog question, he looks at me and he goes, do you read comics? And I, you know, I should have just said, yeah, yeah, gung-ho, Superman, Batman. But I, the truth is I don't. Um, I love you know, movies about them. I love TV shows about them. I don't really read them that much, although I'm reading, you know, Sinestro War right now. Uh, and so I said, you know, a little bit. But I think that's funny that he even had to ask. Like, why even bother asking if I read comics? Because the rest of the room is may or may not get your reference. So let's just assume I read comics. And even if I don't, yeah, let's just keep going. So he, he, he refers, he, he makes the analogy that that particular Sundance festival where he was, was like the Lazarus pit that Raja Ghul gets resurrected 
you know, they dump him into it because the dude's like 500 years old and then he comes out all bright and shiny and new. Um, but apparently, and I didn't know this from, from the Batman, the animated series that I've seen, um, the Lazarus pit moves. And it, it requires an alignment of the stars, and then, you know, Raja Ghul and his daughter and everybody has to, you know, reconvene and figure out where the Lazarus Pit is right now. And in Kevin Smith's analogy, the Lazarus Pit had moved into, into the Sundance Film Festival, and he had been thrown into it. Somebody had a question. It wasn't a good question, but the answer was fantastic. Uh, the question was, what was it like to direct Bruce Willis? And, you know, versus being in, because Kevin was also in the fourth Die Hard movie acting opposite Bruce Willis. And Kevin had a great story about directing Bruce Willis because, believe it or not, Bruce Willis refuses to take direction. Isn't that just great? I mean, I can't say I'm all that surprised that Bruce Willis has the balls not to take direction. But what bugs me about it is, uh, in, in Kevin's story, he talks about... Um, how he asked Bruce to do something a certain way, and Bruce was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then, of course, didn't do it. He did it the way he wanted to do it. And then Kevin thought, well, maybe he didn't hear me, so he does it a couple of times, and Bruce Willis does it the way he wants to do it every single time. I despise passive-aggressive behavior. I, I don't see any need for it. I mean, especially if you're Bruce Willis. You know, Bruce Willis, uh, Kevin tells another story about when they were on the set of, of Die Hard 4, and the movie studio would say, like, well, we want you to do it this way, and Bruce Willis would say, who's your second choice to play John McClane in this movie? Right? I mean, that's that to me is aggressive-aggressive. But to, you know, if you're gonna be... And, and I get, you know, Kevin Smith was very nice about it. He was like, you know, Bruce, he's been playing a cop you know, because the movie that they're shooting is a couple of dicks. He's been playing a cop for essentially 20, 25 years. He knows how to play a cop, whether it's, you know, diehard cop or whatever cop. He's been playing a cop. So, I, you know, Kevin was nice about it. And he was like, you know, who am I to say that Bruce Willis and uh, how to play a cop in a cop movie? He knows how to do that. But still, if, if that's my attitude going in, I would have a meeting with Kevin and say, look, you know, because they, they've worked together. They know each other. Bruce has even called him up, you know, when he was on vacation. You know, he has some sort of relationship with him. If I was Bruce Willis and this was my MO, I would say, look, I'm doing this. You are playing in my arena, Smith. You know, you've made Jay and Silent Bob movies for 15 years. I've been making cop movies for 25 years. You are now making a cop movie. You are now in my playground. Mind you, I'd be nicer about it than that. But essentially, that's what it is. I mean, I get Bruce Willis saying, here's a guy who's been making dick and fart jokes for 15 years. This is not the dick and fart joke arena anymore. Therefore, I know more about this genre than you. And he's absolutely right in terms of making this kind of a movie. But still, I, 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 I despise the whole, you know, just sitting there and saying you'll do something and not. Just say it. I mean, if this is where we're going, just say it and get it out of the open. You know Kevin will be cool with it as long as you phrase it in the right way. And, and you know, eventually, when it came down to, um, 
a, a sort of more tender moment in the movie, Kevin did finally step up and say, look, could you do it like this? And Bruce Willis did it because Bruce Willis, if you notice, most of his movies don't really have a lot of tender moments in them. You know, there there is no moment in Die Hard except for the very, very end when he hugs his wife and uh, Al shoots that dude in the head. You know, that's it. And even that doesn't that doesn't require much emotional uh, a leap uh, in your acting abilities. So it was good that at least that one time when we weren't doing a quote unquote cop movie, he did listen to Kevin. But you know, kind of a lame question, but a, a really great answer. And and that's really the the key to the public speaker, the Q and A taking those kind of lame questions, especially when you got, you know, the general public a- asking these questions, because they don't do a lot of research. I mean, I suppose if you're a journalist and you show up, you've done your research, you know what questions have been asked before, maybe you can ask something that builds on that. But if, the, if you're the general public, you know, you're probably... There was one woman there who didn't even know he had moved from New Jersey to California, which he did like eight eight years ago, seven years ago. And she didn't know that. And I'm just like, do you not listen to the podcast ever? I mean, you claim, I mean, you bought tickets, you, you showed up, you claim to be a Smith fan. You don't listen to this podcast. What's the matter with you? And, and, you know, taking the, the, uh, lame question and, and spinning it into a great answer. It, I, I, the, nobody does that better than Chuck Polinuk, the guy who wrote, Fight Club. And I saw him speak at a, a book signing once, and he got all kinds of dumb, you know, not even dumb questions, but questions that he's had a million times, and, and questions you really could just ask anybody, like, how do you deal with writer's block? And, and he had great answers. Now, the great thing about Kepler's, the way they have it set up, is they have a big area in the middle of the store that is right in front of the kids' section where they do uh, the book signings and book readings and all of this stuff. So, Chuck Polinuk is up there talking about his book writing process, and I believe that the magic number is seven. If he can write seven pages of a book, and any seven pages of the book, then he realizes, okay, there's enough book here to finish it and keep writing it. But if he can't get to seven pages, then, well, who cares? Um, so, of course, everybody says, well, you know, give us an example of the seven pages that launched, you know, a book of yours. And he wrote this really great book, and it was the first book of his I read that really got me hooked on him. Uh, it's called Invisible Monsters. Uh, that and Choke are my two favorites. So, if you're thinking about getting into Chuck Palahniuk, and you've already seen Fight Club, and you like it, and you want to read more of his books, uh, I have not seen the movie Choke. I hear it's not good. So, Choke and Invisible Monsters. So, he reads the part from Invisible Monsters where they're sitting around Thanksgiving and the parents are trying to show how hip they are. So, they talk about um, all the crazy sex acts they've read about in the world and learned about. And so, he goes into this big, long description about what fisting versus felching is. And there were parents dragging their kids out of that uh, kid section just as fast as they could. And it was awesome. And, you know, of course, Chuck Pollock, he doesn't, un- he doesn't know the layout of the story. He doesn't know that there are kids right behind him. He's just doing his thing. He just figured, hey, man, hey, man, if you're here, you're obviously cool with felching. Maybe not doing it, but talking about it, you are down with it. So I'm just going to let my freak flag fly and talk about felching like we're going out of style. And, uh, yeah, you know, seven-year-olds... Nah, probably don't need to hear about that. 
I don't understand the concept of the book signing, right? Because financially, it doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, Kevin Smith, you sell tickets, and, and that's how you make the money, and it's totally worth it. But as a book signing, I mean, you're going to, like the, like the place I saw Chuck Palahniuk down in Kepler's in, in Menlo Park, it's a good size for a bookstore in terms of how they have it arranged for Q&As. You know, and, and book readings and whatnot. And by the way, book reading, do I really need you reading your book to me? I know how to read. I can read myself. I don't need you reading your book to me. I mean, are you some great performer? Are you going to bring the words to life? No. I mean, good God. Can you imagine Stephen King reading from his book? And then the car, it started up by itself. And it's like, really? I don't want to hear that. And Kepler's, in the seating arrangement, can maybe hold 100 people who can hear and see the speaker at the book reading, okay? 100 people and 50% of them buy the hardcover book. And the hardcover book is, you know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks, 20 bucks, let's say 20 bucks. Uh, okay, so... Uh, half of a hundred is uh, 50. Well, let's say all hundred of them buy the hardcover book just for the sake of math. That's two grand. Now, the author doesn't make all two grand. The book company doesn't make all the two grand. The bookstore probably makes a fair share of that. But really, the expense for the bookstore is nothing, right? Like they have to buy a PA system a hundred years ago that they can drag out of storage every once in a while. But it doesn't cost them anything to have this uh, engagement. And in fact, they, for them, it's a windfall, right? Because they get the books, the money from the books being sold. You might actually buy something else while you're there. But from the bookseller perspective, from, from, I'm sorry, from the talent perspective, I don't know how logistically, financially, this makes any sense at all. Because I mean, just to fly the person out there, put them up in a hotel, you know, that's got to be four or $500 right there. And, and is it all this worth it for an extra $1,500? And, and honestly, I'm guessing most of these people were going to buy this book anyway, you know? I mean, if they're big enough fans of you to come out and, you know, stand around and listen to you read, which they can do themselves, who Maybe not. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe, uh, you know, people, fans, even diehard fans wouldn't buy the hardcover. Maybe they would wait for the, for, you know, six months or however long it takes to do a, a paperback book. Boy, I, if anybody knows the financials of the book tour, I would, I would love to know. One thing that did kind of piss me off, though, about my question was at the end of every question, when Kevin feels like he's answered it, he goes, are we good then? And then, you know, most people go, yeah. And, you know, I had the one question and when he got to, you know, the yada yada part, he was like, okay, are we good? And I'm like, well, I don't understand. And he's like, oh, we're not good. And he was sort of like, you know, oh, really? You got another question? Do you not see all these other people down here? Like it was this sort of a parenthetical statement like that. And then I think it was the very next person. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. She was this crazy broad who was down in the front and she asked, she's like, uh, oh, I have like seven questions. Um, 
and I'll, you know, I'll, I, I know I can't ask them all. He's like, fuck it, ask them all. You got the mic. You came down here. You stepped up. Those other people didn't come down here. You go ask as many questions as you want. And I'm like, motherfucker, I had one follow up and you're busting my nuts be- and you're letting her have free reign. Or is it because she's mostly naked and down in the front row? <sighs> anyway, yeah, but I mean, I, look, I can't be totally surprised, you know. I, I would totally, I can't say she was a hot chick. I mean, I only saw her from the back of the head and she seemed crazy. So I, I can't say she was all that hot. But let's pretend, you know, she was super hot. Yeah, of course, I would have said that, you know, I was went way nicer to the hot chick and kind of a dick to the, the nerd in the uh, in the upper balcony. But I don't know. I mean, the one thing I, I don't know if I mean, Kevin Smith had a lot of stories about how he smokes a ton of weed. And he has said in the past that he does not smoke weed before doing um, these Q&As. But then he also told a story how he used to wait till seven o'clock before smoking a ton of weed. And now he starts at three. So who knows, you know, where the where the line in the sand is anymore. You know, does he still not smoke weed before Q&As? Because I tell you, man, he had me ask him, you know, tell him the timeline I was interested in like three times. The crazy chick in front. And and by the way, I have to tell a little bit about the crazy chick because the crazy chick was crazy um, and had one of the most inappropriate questions I've heard ever, you know, because Kevin Smith has three DVDs that are all, you know, Q&A sessions, which is actually a really good idea because you don't want people repeating the same question over and over again. It gets really boring. So if you can put out those Q&As on DVD and he said he's not going to do any more, this is it, which is why it was really important for me to go to this because no one, I know no one's going to ask my question now. I mean, maybe they are, but I'm not going to get to hear the answer. I needed to hear the answer. So the crazy chick is down front and she starts off crazy, right? She starts off with, um, would you sign my boobs? Now, from where I'm sitting, I don't think she has much in the way of boobs. So just playing find the boob for half an hour would be tedious at best. But Kevin Smith, not a boob man. So he said, you know, and, and honestly, I don't think he, he would do it anyway, especially, you know, his wife is there somewhere in the building. Uh, he's not going to sign your boob, but, you know, Kevin's going to take the opportunity to uh, mix it up. And so he says, well, you know, I don't sign boobs, but I do sign assholes. So bring it up. And I got two eyes in my name. So I go and I use a quill. You know, you can put an eye out with this thing. And I got two eyes in my name. So I go, bam, bam. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, so then she says, she says, I, I can't remember how she gets on the topic, but it turns out she's pregnant uh, with this guy and his, and, and his name is Dan. She says, oh, you know, Dan, I'm sure is embarrassed right now about all of this. And Kevin's like, why? I think he'd be the happiest man in the room. And she says, well, he sort of has a girlfriend. And of course, everybody freaks out about that, which was pretty awesome. And uh, so we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, how she's a bit of a homewrecker, but he was engaged to her, but then her mom broke it up and then he went back to her because he, she was his high school sweetheart. So he hooked up with her again. And then she said, Dan, and, and then she says to him while they're having sex, Dan, put a baby in me, which is gross. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so and there's a whole uh, bunch of drama about that. And then Kevin says, well, have you picked out a name for the baby? And she's like, yeah, if it's a boy, uh, Vidar, and if it's a girl, Abernathy. Oh, you are all kinds of crazy. So then he's like, well, and Kevin's like, well, you know, I, I'm okay with Abernathy, but you're, you're really, seriously, you're going to name your kid Vader? You know, it sounds a whole lot like Darth Vader. And she's like, well, no, 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 no. It's spelled differently. And he's like, well, how do you, wait, Vader? And she's like, no, it's with an I. And he's like, V-A-D-I-R? No, no, with I's. For, and he wasn't screwing around at this point. Like, he literally couldn't figure out how you would spell Vidar with an I. And it was weird. Like, he had her spell it, like, several times because I think, like, he's just been smoking too much weed. And this is, I have to say, like, this is the big difference I feel between drinking and weed. Weed, if you do too much of it, it just rots your memory. Like you, like I used to play music with this guy, very, t- very talented guy, very smart, very cool, very innovative, but it was maddening because he smoked a ton of weed and every rehearsal we would go to, it was like the first rehearsal. He couldn't remember anything we had done the previous week. There was one time where I said, hey, let's do, you know, this. And he was like, well, we've never done that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yes, we did. And we did it like this. And I was, oh, no, that's impossible. Now he was all indignant. That's impossible. We could not have done that. There's no way we did that. And no, yes, we did do that. But I have to say, the thing I like about the weed versus the drinking is weed will never make you throw up. And in fact, it usually does the obvi- uh, obvious. Yes, it does the obvious. Uh, it does the opposite, which makes you not throw up, uh, which is why, you know, the people who have uh, cancer treatments and the cancer medicine makes them throw up. So they smoke the weed. But, you know, if you drink in moderation, you won't throw up. And and I suppose if you smoke weed in moderation, but honestly, though, I can drink every day and not throw up. If I smoke weed every day, my memory will go. And honestly, that's the thing that really would freak me out more about anything than weed is the memory. My memories are really all I've got. You know, I mean, that's my big skill is that I remember things. I have no endurance. I can't stand for very long. I can't sit for very long. Um, I'm not terribly athletic, although I am having a good time at the batting cages. Oh, I found out I was using the wrong size bat at the batting cages. I was using the little baby bat. I found a full size bat at the cages. Man, I hit a, a easily a base hit, man. There was no questioning. That was what would have been right over the second baseman's head and dropped into the, the infield or the outfield. Oh, it was awesome. I was like, the perfect way to end that session was just like, yeah, right on. Anyway, So my memory is all I have. And in fact, when I do this podcast, it's like I get nested into the layers of, you know, my tangents. And one of my proudest moments is getting back out and layering back out and not going from, you know, one to two to three to three to one. No, no, I go one, two to three to three to two to one. Booyah, I got it. And I feel so good good about that. And that's one of the other really funny things that Kevin talked about was really appreciating the small milestones of your life. Like he would take the mic stand and tip it over and then walk over it and be like, there, that was an accomplishment. 
I accomplished something. I crossed over that. I didn't trip. I didn't fall down. I accomplished something. So yeah, I really, I am concerned about his memory. But getting back to the crazy chick, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing that really, um, the audience found objectionable, uh, was, uh, he, she, he's, they're going through the whole Vader Vidar thing. And she says something like, it's, uh, the name of Odin's something or other from Norse mythology. And it means blah, blah, blah. And really, it was at that point that the audience truly turned on her. It was funny. It was like, really? Really, of all the crazy crap this broad has been saying for the last 20 minutes, that's the thing you chose to get upset about. Really, the fact that she named her kid something from Norse mythology. And you gotta hope, honestly, I would rather have a Vidar in this world than an Abernathy. I mean, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, you liked Abernathy. I do not. Might as well, or, uh, you know, I had an old roommate who wanted to name his kids Ammonia and Ludlow because it knew it would make them grow up tough from all the teasing they would get about it. But Abernathy, really? The crazy chick actually did have a real question, which was, how I, you know, I, I know you're doing comics now. You didn't start doing comics. I really want to break into comics. How do you do it? And honestly, rather than Kevin bullshitting her with some, well, work hard and go to school and do all this bullshit, he, he just looked at her and was like, oh, the way, the way you do it is you direct clerks. Cause honestly, that's how he did it, right? You know, he, he got some notoriety. He got to a place of, fame where somebody said to him, hey, I know you love comics. Hey, you're a big name. Hey, it would be a great promotional thing to have you do something with us. Uh, you know, I don't care how many great ideas I have. I, you know, people are going to look at me and be like, so what? I mean, is is your name really going to bring more you know, uh, readers to our table? No, of course not. But Kevin Smith will. And so he just was straight up with her. He's like, yeah, man, direct clerks. That's your answer. So once she announced that Vidar was some Norse hoopajoop, the audience turned on her and they were sick of her. They were tired of her. They wanted to go her way. No matter what Kevin said, you know, hey, you've got the mic and they didn't come down and blah, blah, blah. No, they were done. And so Kevin looked at her and he said, so are we good? And literally the entire Warfield Theater said yes. And, and not, and no uncertain terms and, and in unison said yes. It was fantastic. There is only one other time, um, that I've seen this sort of unified belief in something, you know, from an, uh, from a random collection of folks so strong. Uh, and I love it. I love it when just everybody gets together and they're on the same page and they're like, we have had it with fill in the blank and we're going to announce it as if we all ha- it like it all came from one brain that we are just all in this together. Um, it was when I was in college. 
Uh, I was in, you know, college, especially because I went to college in San Francisco, and there are a lot of weird sort of goofball classes. Like I took variations in human sexuality, which was super cool. I got to see, you know, strippers and porn and um, all kinds of great stuff in that class. Uh, I took, but the one th- that matters in this, in this story is uh, the art of comedy. It was, it was a really goofy class. It was, I don't know, it was kind of like examining comedy from like the beginning of time and how the Greeks looked at comedy and the Commedia dell'arte of France. France, let's go with France, sure. And, uh, so one of the things that we had to do was do a performance and we had to do a character. And so it was, it wasn't really about what the character was saying. It was really more about the physical attributes and the qualities of the character. Uh, so I, I did sort of the nervous guy character and, um, I used, I stole a joke. I'll, I'll admit it. You know, anybody who saw me in that class, I stole this joke from Letterman back in the, in the day and, and, and of course I didn't tell anybody at the time, but it was less about what was written and more about how I acted. Um, and I'm not going to do the character now because it's just not that good. But he's this nervous guy and he's sort of awkward around women. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Really not very much like acting. But in the, in the process of the character, he says something like, um, so, you know, my friends, they wanted to help and they wanted to take me uh, to Broadway for my birthday. Now, mind you, Broadway in San Francisco is a little different than Broadway in New York. Oh, sure, there are many similarities. The bright lights, the big names, the smell of men enjoying themselves. <laughs> I loved that so much. So I said that in class, and it was great. I mean, there's certainly nowhere near the capacity of the of the Warfield Theater. We probably had, you know, 100 students in this class, but it was in a theater, which made it kind of cool. And it was cool because it was like 100 students all kind of going... all at the same time, which was hilarious. I love that. Uh, And and to have that sort of group, just spontaneous, unified reaction all at once, fantastic. I loved it. So, uh, yeah, so we were done with Crazy Chick. So just to finish up with my question, you know, because I realized I have yet to tell you what the real answer to the question was, was, so he gets this lovely article in the Village Voice, uh, they shop it around, and and they get the Village Voice article in October. Uh, Kevin Smith goes back uh, to working at the Quick Stop in New Jersey, you know, and here he's in super debt. Uh, he has done the thing he thought would help launch the movie. It didn't. He gets this lovely article in the Village Voice, which is great, and he thinks that's going to be, you know, the catapult he needs. Still, nothing happens. He says, well, the only thing we can do now, the last-ditch effort, is uh, to get clerks into the Sundance Film Festival, and that doesn't even happen until, like, February or March. And so, that whole time, he's just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And of course, uh, there are other people along the way who express interest, but for the most part, he's just sitting there stuffing the Sunday newspaper, getting ready for people to come by and buy it, buy their pack of smokes. And the, the I, I forgot to mention the very inappropriate question from Crazy Girl, which is, so now we know she's pregnant, so she says to Kevin, 
I'm having trouble gaining weight. And which is idiotic. Like, hey, here's an idea. Go ask a dietitian. Don't just ask any random fat guy, right? Ask somebody who is qualified to give you a good answer. Because I tell you what, just getting fat isn't better, right? Like, you have to gain weight the right way. You can't just be like, donuts! No, you are crazy, and the child is doomed. And sadly, though, we were sort of done with the good questions. I mean, there are more, you know, I I don't want to say people had terrible questions. Oh, except one guy. One guy had a really terrible question, which was, hey, I'd love it if you came back sometime and drove up from L.A. and you, me, and my wife would go see a hockey game together, which is just absolutely retarded. I mean, the dude has hockey in Los Angeles. I mean, even if he was interested in hanging out with you, you would go to him. And second of all, he's not interested in hanging out with you. I mean, he doesn't even know you. He's, he's seen you for 25 seconds on the front of the stage. You're dope. No, he doesn't want to hang out with you. He's got plenty of hockey. And if you knew anything about him, Kevin is basically a shut-in. He doesn't really go out or do anything. And he likes to sit home. He likes to watch his DVDs. He'll do stuff. He'll go out occasionally. But really, he's kind of a homebody. He doesn't want to go out with you, dumbasses. Um, there one was one guy, though, who asked sort of the vaguely obnoxious question, which is usually the one I ask, but I didn't, I, I was not going to ask at this time. Uh, so fortunately, somebody did, because it's, you know, as long as it's not me. Uh, and he said, uh, it felt like Zach and Mary make a porno, were written by two different people. And uh, Kevin said, well, you know, there was a lot more improv on this movie than there has been on any other movie, which is interesting because I remember when Chris Rock was in Dogma, and maybe it was the fact that it was all, you know, religious dogma that you can't really improv on it. But uh, Chris Rock was like, yeah, Kevin came over and said, no improv, you do it as it's written. And Chris Rock's reaction was, look, man, I get it if you're worried about Selma Hayek thinking she can improv, but I'm a stand-up comedian. I mean, I make my living sort of, not really improv, but, you know, telling jokes and being funny. If I think of a funny idea, I should be able to do it. But what was really interesting, because, you know, no, no Kevin Smith answer is just, you know, two words. And he's talked about this on the Smodcast, except one of the things he said that was brand new was that he felt challenged uh, by Judd Apatow because he had read in an article that, you know, with the success of 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up, that uh, literally the quote was, Judd Apatow has made Kevin Smith irrelevant, you know, because Kevin Smith movies never make over $30 million. Judd Apatow movies make $100 million. And if you're doing sort of the same genre of film, you know, R-rated comedy, um, which is, I guess, close enough, you know, as a genre, uh, then, and you're banking a hundred million dollars and, you know, Kevin Smith is doing 30. Yeah. You know, that sort of marginalizes your accomplishments. At least that's what the article was saying. And so Kevin Smith, and, and that is partly why he put Seth Rogen in the movie is what he says. Of course, you know, Seth Rogen was a big deal and you want a big deal in your movie. And Seth Rogen had, was a big Kevin Smith fan. So it was easy to get him in. But 
he really talked at length about how he was going after Judd Apatow. Like it was, he was hell bent to reclaim his relevance. Wow. And I was, I was, I, it's weird because you don't really think of Kevin Smith caring about any of that stuff. You just think he's like, Hey, I make my, you know, Jay and Silent Bob movies and we have a good old time and it's all a lot of fun. But no, you know, he felt threatened. And it was weird, too, because, you know, he went into a big month-long depression when Zack and Mary didn't make, you know, 50 or $60 million. Like, everyone told him it would. It made $30 million because, you know, porno in the title made it tough to do marketing and it was released on Halloween. And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons. But it was weird to hear that side of it, that competitive, and to, to have some other filmmaker in your sights is a crazy idea, because normally it's, you're fighting against the market, you know, I hope my movie does well, I hope it breaks, you know, X number of dollars, I hope it's number one this weekend, but, you know, that's what you normally do, but to say, like, I'm going after that guy, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting way of pursuing filmmaking. But I liked, I liked that he was very open and honest about it. I don't think most people would be so honest to say, like, that guy threatens me. But it was a great time. I'm really glad I did it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to question my own memory because, well, I mean, I don't know. It's, I've been telling all these stories for so long that I can't remember if I've told them on the podcast before. So I'm sorry if I've told them on the podcast before. I just, uh, I get on a roll and, and sometimes I, I, I don't want to stop and, you know, go back and do research and figure out what I've done. Seeing that this is really Halloween, let's just talk about Halloween for just a second. Um, Halloween to me falls under that category of used to be fun as a kid, now pain in the ass as an adult. Right? It's, oh, God, I got to what? I got to get up off the couch every two and a half seconds to go answer the door, pretend like I'm interested in some kid's costume that I've never met before in my life, throw him a bunch of candy. And I'll tell you, we used to, we moved uh, like two years ago to a nicer neighborhood. And thank God, because that neighborhood, the old neighborhood was weird, right? Like we had, we had like old, we had an old woman show up with a sack looking for candy. No costume, just an old woman. And and uh, M- wife Miriam, she was like, wow, that's an amazing costume. That's a great mask. And then she looks down at the woman's hands and it's clearly not a costume. She's like, trick or treats. And throws a little candy there. We had some teenagers show up and, and Miriam's like, what are you? And she, he's like, I'm a student. And he's got like a backpack on. And he's like, hey, can we watch TV with you guys? And, and she's like, no, I told you. And he looks over at his friends. I told you these people wouldn't let us. And then they walk off. And I'm just like, oh, dear Lord, let get us out of this neighborhood. This is ass. So the thing that bugs me most about Halloween is the statement, what are you supposed to be? Right? Like when you're a kid, it's all very easy. You go down to the store, you get your, you know, plastic mask and your, and your, you know, tarp that goes over you with your pre printed, you know, superhero character on it. Yeah, they probably don't have any of those anymore. Somebody probably choked on one. Uh, but it was obvious. It's always very obvious with a kid's costume. What are you supposed to be? You're a witch. You're Spider Man. You're a ghost. You're a, 
dinosaur, it's very, very obvious. Whereas with adult costumes, it's like, what, what adult, you know, wants to wants to go as Spider-Man? I mean, that's just weird. Uh, but hey, people do it. Uh, so constantly people are saying, what are you supposed to be? And what really bugs me is the supposed to be part, because that is really like, it's like them saying, I realize you had a concept for this costume and you have failed. Fail! Because I can't guess what you are. Now, mind you, a lot of these people, they're doing more obscure costumes. I saw somebody do, uh, somebody had, had tweeted that they were uh, T.S. from Mallrats. And obviously, I love myself some Mallrats, but I don't know if I could pick him out. You know, I, I saw uh, last year, uh, speaking of uh, Fight Club and Chuck Palahniuk, uh, guys went as uh, the Ed Norton character, uh, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, and uh, the Meatloaf character, Robert Paulson. And, uh, you know, the, the, the meatloaf guy, it was great. He had the whole bitch tits rig underneath, you know, a large shirt. And the Brad Pitt guy had like the, you know, that, that sort of, um, orange leather jacket with the aviator sunglasses and his hair spiked up. I mean, they really did. They nailed it, man. They, they did it great. Even I, who have seen Fight Club a dozen times, you have to see all three of them together and, and, you know, if you don't, it really doesn't make any sense, which is kind of an uncomfortable costume. You all have to be, you know, with each other at all times. But great concept. But, you know, I, I was talking to them and they said, oh, yeah, a lot of people had no idea what we were. So I guess if you are um, going to ask somebody what their costume is, just maybe there's a nicer way to phrase it. Like... um, Maybe guess yourself. I don't know. Maybe wait till they say something. Better yet, don't say anything at all. Just just let it go and be, you know, a mystery. Because to really sort... Because most people do put a lot of effort into a costume. I mean, clearly the, you know, the, the Brad Pitt guys didn't have... Um, didn't have those, you know, yellow aviator sunglasses just lying around. The guy had to go out and find them. And which is probably not as easy as it sounds. You know, they, they put some effort into it and to sort of just discount their, you know, month worth of work with what are you supposed to be? Ugh, I hate that. Uh, and so this year, uh, <laughs> uh, Miriam and I went as uh, Luke and Leia from uh, the, you know, A New Hope Star Wars uh, Episode 4 movie. And I thought we got the costumes really, really pretty well nailed down. Um, you know, I bought the uh the the bun ears or bun hair for princess leia they were selling them at the spirit store and uh you know and 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 you know you can see the the pictures online uh but i thought we nailed it and so i said to miriam i was like if if anybody comes up to us and asks us what we're supposed to be i'm just gonna look at them and go like i i have nothing to say to you like you don't recognize like two of the most iconic figures in movie history that are obviously what we are. I, I can't relate to you at all. So then, of course, we get to the party where we were going, and this woman who was clearly from another country, even she got it right. But uh, she did have to stumble around a little bit, you know, but she got it. She nailed it. So I was so, because as soon as she started talking, I was like, oh crap, this is the one. 
one situation where I have to cut her some slack because, you know, you didn't grow up here. It probably wasn't as big a phenomenon in other countries. Okay. Nope. Even she got it. It was perfect. And I don't mind, actually, Halloween. I think Miriam actually enjoys handing out the candy, which uh, I guess is not, you know, this whole idea of, you know, Halloween's a pain in the ass when you're an adult is not a universal truth. Especially if you have kids, I guess it's fun for you, although I can't imagine how. I mean, it's just sort of like, okay, go up to the door, ring the doorbell, say trick-or-treat, get the candy. I'm just going to stand here in the cold. Because, you know, uh, uh, Halloween in the Bay Area, usually fairly nice weather. Rest of the country, not so much. I mean, uh, we have relatives who posted pictures from uh, Denver, and it's two feet of snow. No joke. Uh, that trick-or-treating in two feet of snow, maybe you don't go out that year. I don't know. But uh, and, and what kind of costume can you do when it's snowing out? Like my sister was mad when uh, she was uh, when she was being a toddler. Well, she was she was older, but she was dressed up like a toddler. And my mom wanted her to wear a sweater. She pitched a major fit. Can you imagine what kind of costume you go out in in October when it's snowing? No, I, I mean, hey, I'm gonna be the Michelin Man again. Don't you that every year? Yeah, well, it's damn cold every year. Yo, yes, yes, I am gonna be that again. But anyway, I, yeah, I, I can't. So, so if I have a genius costume in mind, like we did the previous year, this year's costume is kind of whatever. But, uh, previous year, oh, the costume was so fantastic because it was easy. It was cheap. It was comfortable. It wasn't bulky. It wasn't heavy. We, we wanted to do a couple's costume because we were going to this party and, um, I had a coworker named Miriam, not related to wife Miriam, and she said, well, what are you guys going to go as? And I'm like, I don't know. We would, we would like to do some sort of couple's costume, but we don't have any ideas. And she was like, uh, okay, uh, why don't you go to Salt and Pepper? Not the rap group. It's your thing. No, not them. S- Pepper with an R. Um, and so she says, oh, let's go salt and pepper. And I was like, oh, that's a really great idea, you know? And, and it was so simple. Oh, and by the way, if anybody wants to steal this idea, go right ahead. This is maybe the cheapest couple's costume ever. So what we did was, um, uh, uh, one of us dressed all in black and got like a foam letter, you know, foam white letter P. And then the other one dressed in white and got a black foam letter S. And then we got these, um, sort of like a chorus line hats, but we cut them off. We cut off the brim to kind of make them look more like fezzes, like, you know, like a top of a salt and pepper shaker would. So they were silver and glittery. And then I just took a, uh, a drill bit and I just rammed it through the top and I put two holes um in the salt and three holes in the pepper and you know that because the salt crystals are smaller and so it comes out faster that's why the salt has two holes and the pepper has three little tip for you so anyway and and it was great because between you know we we both had the pants already cuz it was kind of a question of who was going to be salt and who was going to be pepper and she already had um you know, I think she she had the white pants. That was the trick, right? So Miriam was salt. Uh, wife Miriam was salt uh, because she had white pants. And who's going to wear white pants? I tell you, man, I can wear white pants for maybe ten seconds before they are 
besmirched and blackened and dirty. So I don't understand why even anyone would make white pants. And for you ladies out there, good God, I mean, what, there's probably like a week out of the month that you can wear white pants? Forget it. Just white pants should be discontinued. Immemorial. No. In Immaterial. No. In perpetuity. Ha ha! That's what it is. Okay. So... Uh, so that was it. And then we just, you know, so, so anyway, so the chorus line hats probably cost us a couple of bucks. The foam letters cost us a couple of bucks. And in terms of the construction and the creation probably took us about half an hour. Easy as pie. And it wasn't a lot of shopping around. There wasn't a lot of this and that. But of course, you know, Miriam, Miriam hates replicating or, or duplicating costumes. I am the exact opposite. And this is actually a, one of those big differences between men and women. And kind of, it, for those of you who have read Brave New World, it's kind of this same idea. And it really is important that we have both sides. Like, I think a dude is really, like, I, I had a costume I used to wear for many, many years, uh, and I was constantly trying to refine it. And it, the ladies hated it, first of all, because it was um, a, it was a, uh, uh, a nylon sock. It was a nylon. It was, uh, you know, some legs, and I would stuff it full of pillow batting, and uh, I tied some fishing line around it and choked it off a little bit to, to give it some definition. Basically, it was a giant penis, right? It was probably three feet long, uh, uh, probably in diameter, maybe about six inches around. It was big. It was sizable. And I had this trench coat and I had a mullet wig. It was awesome. And I had a, a tank hooked up to the back so I could squirt liquid out of it. Uh, and, and which was awesome. Oh my God. This was a fantastic Halloween memory. I remember, um, I, I was, uh, they used to do, uh, for those of you who don't know, they used to do a big party in San Francisco. They would block off, uh, Castro Street and Market Street. Uh, and so it would make this sort of L shape and you could walk up and down the streets and, you know, tons of costumes out. But a lot of the thugs from the outlying areas outside of San Francisco thought this would be a great place to see, you know, possibly naked people or something. So they started showing up and then fights started breaking out. And, you know, uh, wife Miriam and I were, were talking about this the other day. And it, it was one of those things where it was like, we were really glad we went. We were really glad we saw it actually go downhill and then they don't do it anymore. And, and so we, we were glad that we saw it go downhill because we didn't want that feeling of, Oh man, we should have gone one more time. Nope. We went, we did. And now I don't want to, but so anyway, one of my favorite Halloween memories is, is we went to the Castro street, Halloween market street extravaganza and we get we're fighting our way through this crowd. It was, it's packed with people, especially right at the intersection of Castro and Market. And we're fighting our way through and we're fighting our way through and we get out and, and we get into this gas station parking lot and there's just nobody there. There's like a few people around the perimeter of the gas station and they all, and they see us kind of come through the crowd and they all look at us. And so I opened my uh, trench coat. Now, mind you, I had long johns on that I had dyed to match, you know, my skin tone. And uh, everybody's like, yeah, man, whoa, flasher, big fake penis, awesome. 
And then see what they don't know is that it squirts. So I, I juice up the tank and I just, you know, fire it off and this big arcing spray. Oh man, the crowd went nuts. They went crazy for that. And I was just like, yeah. And of course, you know, the women I'm with, they're just like, I mean, they appreciate the moment, but every time, every time they, they, they know I'm going to be in it, they're just like, oh, please don't do that. Don't do that. Like, they're just horrified to be with me uh, in it. But, oh, it was such a great costume, man. It was like everybody responded really well to it. It was fantastic. Um, but, you know, you obviously have to be somewhere where you can spray it. So, Miriam, and, 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 and so getting back to the Brave New World analogy, Miriam always wants to do a new costume, a new costume. We got to, you know, mix it up. And, and my whole feeling, especially with that flasher costume, is I didn't have a great way of dispensing the fluid. Like, I had one of those, um, those hand pump, um, uh, like insecticide sprayer tanks. It's a big thing. It's heavy. It's bulky. You know, and I, I was trying to find something else, some other way to do it and, and trying to do the whole tubing fiasco where you've got, got to get connector tubes and this and that that connects up to the, the hose tank and all this other stuff. Oh, it's a pain in the ass. So I really wanted to do, I really wanted to keep refining the costume. And Miriam was like, no, 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 we've done that. Let's go do something else. And, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not perfect yet. I, I need to, I need to keep working on it. And this is the whole thing about Brave New World is, uh, for those of you who haven't read the book, uh, it's a whole society where there is a very, very rigid caste system. Nobody gives birth to kids. They're all, uh, born in sort of incubators and, from the moment they are born, their fate is decided. And so they have the alpha, beta, delta, gamma caste system. And the alphas are the, the, the best and the gammas are the lowest. But they also infuse these kids with ideas of what you, how you should interact with society. So when the, when the alphas are very young, they know that, that they're, the alphas are going to be making the most money. And they tell them and they brainwash them at a young age, don't fix the stuff. I would much rather have new stuff. Repairing is for schlubs. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to buy new stuff, which on one end of the economy stimulates the new product market. And then the gammas are taught, I really love fixing things which also stimulates the parts market, you know, because they've got to buy the parts in order to fix up the things. And really, in our society, we need both groups to keep running. You know, we need the people who love fixing things for the for the parts part of our economy, but we also need the people who like the new shiny thing. And I have to say, I think dudes are much more about fixing stuff. And it's also tied into our self-esteem that it's like, no, 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 I can fix that. I'm a man. That's what I, we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be fixing things. You know, that's, that's part of what it means to be a man is that I can fix stuff. Um, and a woman is just sort of like, I don't want to deal with this headache. I know I'm not good at it. I'd rather just buy something new and be done with it. So depending on the financials, it, it sort of makes sense, you know, to do one rather than the other. And to be brainwashed to do one or the other is a, a tad unfortunate. But I do feel like I have been brainwashed to do many things just because I've just like, this is what I am supposed to do. I need to be doing that. All right. Well, I realize most of this was about my evening, my evening with Kevin Smith and uh, a little bit about Halloween uh, 
and maybe I, I should have done more Halloween stuff, maybe recanted more. And, you know, I don't really have any other great Halloween experiences. Uh, I think we pretty much hit them all. So, from me, Kevin Smith, hey man, and the music of Bright Brown. Let's do this one more time. Till then! Till then!